you're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Pseudoscience in... Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Today on the show, we're talking about astronomical pseudosciences and geophysical pseudosciences. We're talking about space and, I guess, the ground beneath it. (laughs) Space and Earth. Space and not space. Yes. (laughs) Space and not space. So I think we're going to start off as far away as this show will get, and then we'll end a little closer to home. And then we have an update on something that's even closer than you might think. Or like... (laughs) So Lauren's going to start us off. They're going to tell us all about astrology. Well, not all about it. They're going to tell us some about (laughs) astrology. (laughs) If we want to talk space nonsense that is embedded in our dominant Western culture, you really can't beat your horoscope. Ask any reasonable adult what their sign is, and they will most likely be able to tell you. Quick, round table. Ashlyn, what's your sign? Cancer. I know what Laura's is. It's a Leo. Jim? Libra. I am also a Leo. I'm fair and balanced. We'll get to that. <laughs> what? Ever since I found out what the story is behind the crab cancer, I have just been so upset that I have clearly the worst sign. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the story behind it. The crab of the cancer constellation is supposedly the crab that attempted to pinch the back of hercules's leg i think and got crushed and so the gods were like okay you tried you can have some stars (laughs) it's the worst (laughs) wow that's probably why we're sensitive mama's boys or whatever it is that we are i'm one paragraph in and here we are (laughs) (laughs) it's okay i asked you what your sign was and not in a creepy way in this segment i am focusing on natal astrology using the western slash hellenistic zodiac not the Chinese or the Islamic or the Hindu zodiacs or any other form of astrology. Maybe we should have done an entire show on this topic. Mm-hmm. Could be fun. Yeah, we've already done like the one that's most familiar to us. So, okay, can we do a show that's called the Zodiac, and then we can also cover the murderer? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the film. Yes. Oh, I... Well, Ashlyn and the boat. <laughs> <laughs> What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, having had a modern heyday in the 1960s and 70s as a cheesy straight pickup line, as I already said, what's your sign? Horoscopes are making a comeback with folks making charts and basing life decisions around a literal accident of birth. So let's look at what a horoscope actually is. And I've also done up charts for all of my co-hosts so we can compare how true they are to life. If I may. 
The fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Damn. Well done. We use terms like astrology, horoscope, and zodiac almost interchangeably, but they do have specific meanings. Astrology is the blanket term for a range of divinatory practices based on the positions and movements of celestial bodies. Societies existed, hell, they still exist, that have based their calendars and annual cycles off of these positions of the stars in the sky. I'm assuming every sentient being, with the ability to see the sky on any planet with visible stars, has tried to make sense of them at one time or another. I tried really hard to make a planet cricket joke here, but instead I decided to make that somebody else's problem. <laughs> Which is in itself a planet cricket joke. Yeah. <laughs> I did actually quite enjoy when they went back and did the extra Hitchhiker's Guide radio series mm-hmm. after Adam's death. They were good. Like most of the original cast, I liked them a lot, personally. I'll have to go back to them. So here on Earth, not on Cricket, in European society, using astrology to divine weather patterns and the future fell out of serious favor during the Enlightenment. As an aside, I have a lot of problems with that term, Enlightenment, but this is a lighthearted episode and I'm not about to go on a screed about 16th century racism and classism, how it sets us all up for the horrors of the Industrial Age and whatever we find ourselves in now. Welcome to hell. I'm it's just not an enlighthearted episode. No. Ugh, that well, was not worth interrupting you over. No. <laughs> that was horrible. What I was going to say next was I am just the first segment, and we still have Gem on deck. <laughs> okay, back to the definitions. We have astrology as the blanket term. And in Western astrology, we have the 12 astrological signs. Most people know their sun sign, or the sign that was prominent at the time they were born. This prominence is broken up into roughly monthly segments, but shift at the approximate 20th of each month in the Gregorian calendar. That's so annoying. Mm-hmm. Just line them up, folks. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why in a second. <laughs> <laughs> the visible star zone, where all of these constellations that correspond to the astrological signs live, is called the zodiac belt. Each of these signs occupies 30 degrees of celestial longitude. These signs form an el- ecliptical not elliptical, ecliptical, coordinate system, with the ecliptic as the origin of the latitude and the sun's position at the vernal equinox at the origin of the longitude, hence why it changes on the 20th. (laughs) Okay, Okay. I realize that's true, but that became word soup to me. (laughs) I had to read it like 20 times. pictures, please. Okay, so we got 12 big chunks in the sky, Mm -hmm. and each chunk is approximately 30 degrees. Okay. And then they, because they're based off of the vernal equinox, so the spring... Mm-hmm. The spring equinox, that's when they start. That I'm extremely okay. skeptical that it makes any sense at all to say that they are really 30 degrees apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Approximately, on average, whatever. But also that they can be said to meaningfully occupy, like given their different sizes, meaningfully occupy the same like 30 degree chunk of sky. Like, uh-huh. Surely some are more prominent than others. Yep. Oh, I don't believe this shit. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> That's why you get those cuspy people where they overlap so they can claim things from multiple signs so that they can do even better job of fitting what they hear to what they want to believe. Yeah, even stronger Barnum effect. Yes. <laughs> or Forer effect, depending on. My God, both of these are in this. <laughs> of course they are. That's the whole thing it's based yeah. on. So the vernal equinox is why our zodiac year starts with Aries, which is the one that starts at the end of March. Mm. It's a sign that takes precedence then. And I said that to Dave. 
today. And he is an Aries because he was born on March 25. And he's like, as is right and proper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I assumed that it was just they wanted to make most of their tax credits. So they had to use the fiscal year. <laughs> yes, we'll go with that. It makes just as much sense. Yeah. <laughs> so fun fact, the Greek form of the word zodiac, which I am not pronouncing because we've heard me try to pronounce both Latin and Greek on this show. But it means cycle of little animals. Aww. That's really adorable. <laughs> That's adorable. Oh, yeah, Zo, Zo. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. I yeah. was wondering if they were all called zodiacs when you were saying like the Islamic one, the Hindu one, but that makes no. sense. Yeah. No, I'm basing entirely on the yeah, Western no, Hellenistic I because I knew the most trash about it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so finally, we've looked at astrology and we've looked at zodiac, and a horoscope is the chart derived from where all of the celestial bodies in the zodiac belt are located in correlation to each other at the moment in question. That includes stars and the moon and other planets. But only certain planets? Only the Earth's moon, I assume? Yeah. Funny, we'll get to that. Mm. People use all of these terms interchangeably, and that's cool. I literally cannot stop them. (laughs) (laughs) I had said before that your most prominent astrological sign is your sun sign. And it's the easiest one to determine, because it's the 30-degree chunk of where the sun is in the zodiac belt at the moment of your birth for a natal chart. Oh yeah, from here on out, we'll be talking about natal charts, or the position of the stars at birth. You can do charts for any moment, and they have a bunch of different names, but I've already gone too far, and we've only just got started. (laughs) You tell I find this great fun? (laughs) I love abstract, totally arbitrary rule systems. (laughs) It's great! (laughs) Please, world build for me. Where the other celestial bodies sit in relation to the sun shows what other signs have effect on certain parts of your life. So if you are a Capricorn, the sun was in the Capricorn 30-degree chunk of the sky, called a house. And if you're born at a date and a time where Jupiter sits in the 30-degree chunk belonging to Aries, it will be labeled as, surprise, Jupiter in the Aries. Planets can be in conjunction or in sextile or in retrograde or in some other relations based on longitudes and latitudes, and how close or how far from your sun sign determines how much of an effect that particular sign has on that aspect of your life. Makes total sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. word soup in word, the sky. so much soup. Yeah, it's just little stars of words in the sky. <laughs> I'm obviously being very flip, but over a third of Americans, and I couldn't find numbers on Canadians, believe that their astrological chart has a strong bearing on their life and are willing to fill in the gaps that this subjective validation leaves. Subjective validation happens when two random events are thought to be related because we expect them to have a relationship. For instance, I was born in Leo, so I must be gregarious and attention-seeking because that's just how Leos are. That's 100% you are. I've never heard a more apt description. (laughs) (laughs) And when we look at my chart, all but one of my signs are in Leo. So you're the strong, almost yeah. the strongest Leo. Yeah. I'm a big old lion. A lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. I got some <laughs> pride, baby. <laughs> so I think we've mentioned this before. Jem has stepped on this already, this segment. But in 1948, psychologist Bertrand Forer <laughs> tested subjective validation by giving a personality test to students. I'm only kidding. I'm sorry. (laughs) He told them that they would each get a personalized analysis based on the test results, and they were to rate their analysis on a scale of 0 to 5 based on how accurate it felt to them. The rub was, each student received an identical analysis. 
On average, the students rated the analysis 4.26 out of 5 for accuracy. The analysis was full of what we now call Barnum statements. The statements were vague and could apply to anyone. Like Marco Pierre White on Australian MasterChef the other night. <laughs> oh my god. Ashwin just started screaming, Barnum statements! At the well, TV. Just, it doesn't matter what he says because he does. he knows how to say it very slowly and impactfully. So you think that he is imparting the greatest of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Once you know to look for it, it is so incredibly common. Astrology doesn't make sense to me. I mean, we have all this world building or whatever. <laughs> but... There's some plot holes. <laughs> <laughs> Where did the Urukai come in? When I was very young, what tipped me off was that different astrologers in different newspapers tells you how old I am, so we had different newspapers, had different predictions for the same person in a day. Which one am I supposed to follow? The one I liked best? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Seven-year-old Lauren is reading these two different astrology things and going, why this no make sense? You know, you have to decide which columnist you think is the better one and slavishly dedicate yourself to following mm -hmm. that person for the rest of your life. I just, I love the idea that... <laughs> You can divide the entire world into 12 different kinds of people, according to this like newspaper mm -hmm. version of astrology. I know it's more complex, as you've described, but and that one in every 12 people will have approximately but meaningfully the same day every day. Yep. Which So my seven-year-old Lauren had much more questions. Why does this practice still behave as if we have a geocentric universe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a big word for seven-year-old Lauren. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Earth isn't the center, as we now know, and the rest of the celestial bodies do not revolve around us. Also, what about the other planets in our solar system that we didn't know about until relatively recently, like in the last 250 years? Or the moons, as Jem mentioned? Where do they fit into my chart? Where does Io? Io is in... It's Iowa. Moose. I don't know. <laughs> Elg. Elg. <laughs> How is it possible that a paragraph full of Barnum statements could apply to roughly one-twelfth of the world's population on any given day? People don't live identical lives. Astrologers say, that's why we have to drill down to the natal charts. But who has time to look that up and do the math every day? Here's a pretty scientifically damning piece of information about the astrology. The Earth's spin drifts slightly, and the constellations shift by one degree every 72 years. The zodiac houses chunked out over 2,000 years ago? Shifted. Technically, you should be reading the star sign from before yours if you want something more accurate to today's sky. In Sweet, I'm not a terrible crab. <laughs> I am. That, that turns Laura and I into terrible crabs. <laughs> no! <laughs> there was a big Tumblr post in, I think it was 2016 by NASA, where they went into the how the Earth's rotation shifts and how you have a different horoscope than you think they do. And everybody was like, well, they're adding a 13th horoscope. And it was a whole big furfurau. And it's like, no, it's just, it's not what you think it is. So anyway, on to the nonsense. I use cafeastrology.com to do each of your charts because technology exists for me to pull these together in seconds instead of pouring over charts and doing math with my own brain. <laughs> the curator of Cafe Astrology does caution us that, quote, a computerized reading can never replace an astrologer's assessment of your chart. Side note, that is one of the reasons why I refuse to call computerized reports readings on my site. <laughs> hmm. Aw, so snobby. Prior to our recording, I asked each of my co-hosts to provide me with the date, time, and location of birth, and I plugged that information into the online calculator. 
Each of the readings warn us, quote, Each paragraph of interpretation refers to an individual position in your chart. All of these positions and aspects are some of the parts that make up a whole. You! Some of these interpretations will be contradictory, just as people are contradictory. (laughs) A person can be timid in love and aggressive in business, for example. As well, we evolve and grow throughout our lives, facing challenges that help us to handle our positions and aspects in different ways. Hmm. That was editorial. Hmm. (laughs) We all have choices, and one of the major benefits of astrology is the chance to understand ourselves so that we can work with our natal charts and improve ourselves. Any computerized report that interprets the individual placements in a natal chart is somewhat disjointed, simply because the different parts that make up the whole are not synthesized. Translation, I don't get to put my bullshit on this. Yeah, <laughs> that's hedging, folks. Yeah, uh, I, I like the fact, like, as as that paragraph was going on, I was like, oh, they just don't have, when they put this together, they just didn't have programmers that were sophisticated enough to figure out where the contradictions were happening and smooth those oh. out the way an actual astrologer would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can't do a hot reading on you when you're on the other side of the computer. So who wants an excerpt from their natal chart first? I'm not going to read everybody's full chart because they're 22 pages long. Yeah, (laughs) but I'll go first. All right. So we have Laura, pronoun she. They did allow us to do she, her, they. She, he, or they on there. So Hmm. hooray, cafe astrology. She, her, they would be hilarious though. (laughs) 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 Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Okay. Let's go through. There's a big table with all of the different planets in... If they're in the rising or whatever, and I tried to make sense of what these charts actually mean, and they do not make sense to me, but we do have energies for masculine, feminine, cardinal, fixed, mutable, fire, earth, air, water. Oh, wow. Yeah. They have all four of the elements. Mm-hmm. All four. Yeah. How'd they cram those in there? Okay. The sun represents vitality, a sense of individuality, and outward shining creative energy. Your sun is in Leo. Is an unmistakably regal heir to solar Leos. My soul is an island. My car is a Ford. These are dignified, even noble folk. Leos have a reputation for being conceited, but think again. Leos do feel important, but this generally takes the form of wanting to change the world in some way, to make the world a better place. They are generally motivated by affection for people, and often have big dreams and plans to make people happy. How accurate is that, Laura? Well, I do try... I I do try to make people happy a lot. (laughs) Could you think of anyone that that would not be accurate for? I mean, yes, I can think of some people, but by and large, there's a lot of people. Sure. Whenever I need to think about astrology, I just think of Laura and my dad. And the fact that they have the same astrological sign. I'm like, well... There you go. (laughs) Like At least with things like Enneagrams or the Myers-Briggs or whatever, people aren't chunked up into categories that are so chunky like it, there are there's the possibility for multiple people born in august to have different myers-briggs personalities mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. there's no possibility for them to have different star signs it's yeah myers-briggs yeah. is just astrology for leftists though you have a 275 trine between your sun and your moon what your emotions and your will are at peace with one another Suggesting a rather balanced personality. Yeah, no. Have you met me? (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm reading this one. (laughs) The messages you received in childhood were not contradictory overall, and you have a stronger sense of purpose 
an appreciation of harmony than most people. Listeners, you can't see it, but Laura <laughs> is shaking her head like she is a bobble doll on somebody's dashboard. <laughs> I liked, there was a part, scroll back up, where it was like, yeah, this short description, which is very like overview. She is masterful. She likes authority. She aspires toward an ideal. She likes to give advice. She is honest, frank, loyal, open, and sincere. Possible issues, pride, vanity, arrogance, presumption, and disdain for others, including me. <laughs> I, I feel like so far that is the most accurate part of things. The longer explanation, I'm like, no, no, no. I've never felt disdain from Laura. No. <laughs> you are, you are, <laughs> you're, you're not her husband. <laughs> <laughs> Your moon is in your first house. You are very sensitive. You fantasize. You are easily touched, moved, and affected. She is sometimes shy, prudent, and emotional. Sometimes? Who isn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Listeners, Ooh. we are only on page 10 out of 25 of Laura's Next chart. That's going to move on. I will send each of you your full charts from cafeastrology.com. <laughs> I will not read it, but thank you. Each. Thank you very much. Yes. How much was that? No, th okay. these were all free. Okay, good. If I was a huckster. Ashlyn, you want to go next? Sure. Do Sorry, me, do me. <laughs> Generally do. All right. We're going to get through all the charts. Tell me things about me. The sun represents vitality. Oh, we already went through what the sun actually represents. The sun is in cancer. Sun and cancer natives have a strong survival instinct. They are protective of those they care about and of themselves too. They are often quite reticent about sharing their inner selves to the rest of the world and are often caught up in reminisce. And you like time hop? <laughs> <laughs> Cancers have a reputation for moodiness, although this trait is most evident when the moon is in Cancer. Cancer needs roots. They resist change to an extent and concern themselves about being secure and safe in most everything they do. They can be quite intrigued by objects with history attached to them, antiques, photos, souvenirs, and the like. All right, short description. Ashwin weighs words carefully and can be tenacious. A calm and discreet nature, tender, thoughtful, sensitive, and impressionable. Possible issues. She is humble. <laughs> she is timid. She is changeable. She is indecisive. She is lazy or oversensitive. A little oversensitive. <laughs> easily, <laughs> easily influenced by the family and sometimes manipulative. Cancer with Ascendant Leo projects a strong image which hides a sensitive and emotional character. Who Very noticeable and intriguing demeanor. A noticeable and intriguing demeanor. What, what does that F mean? mean? <laughs> Your moon is in Virgo. Your lunar Virgos find security in the little things in life. Who doesn't? Um, moon is in the second house. Mercury is in your 11th house. You have a lot of friends. You like intelligent, cultivated people. I'm just scrolling down and starting paragraphs when With I see whom them. I can enjoy verbal sparring. That is actually true. She yeah. yeah. debates interminable discussions. Isn't that literally what you said earlier? Yeah. Nobody else likes arguing as much as me. That's why they won't play bracketeering with me. Yeah. <laughs> she has a great sense of observation and quickly grasps and sizes the situation. Crafty, subtle, and perceptive. Mars is an Aries. Your Mars is an Aries, so you are very impulsive. Nothing. <laughs> well, when you were born, it means that Mars was in the Aries <laughs> of the sky. The first instinct for Mars and Aries people is to take action. Quick flare-ups characterize the Mars and Aries character, but their anger doesn't usually last for long. That's not too bad. All right, do gem. Yep. All right. And again, we're only on page 12 of 22. Gem's Four. natal chart report. Discreet is very funny to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Your Ash, very book. <laughs> a wilting violet. Yes. Libra natives. Shri- shri- shrinking, shrinking violet. violet. Yeah. Shrinking violet. So the sun is in Libra. Libra natives are generally thought to be sociable, somewhat intellectual souls. Sociable. sociable. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You make me look like a you know, <laughs> gregarious. They have almost an innocent way about them that makes them very approachable. <laughs> generally quite... Well, e- okay, like, Jem is standoffish, but somehow attracts people to him. So maybe that is what that's saying. Wait for this one, Laura. Oh, no. Generally quite eager to cooperate. <laughs> Librans spend a lot of their time trying not to rock the boat. <laughs> Jem is like a fucking wave machine. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Here's your... You have a great need to be part of a group. Uh, literally like, never true. <laughs> you like to mix with people and seek partnerships. <laughs> what? He likes and respects justice. That's okay. He approves of society's values. <laughs> <laughs> he is level-headed and assimilates quickly. Weaknesses. May not think enough. <laughs> he is frivolous. A dilettante in love. <laughs> Easily swayed by group pressure. Incorrect. <laughs> All right. Good Lord. I'm just going to keep that scrolling was, down. And that is it. hilariously inaccurate for Jim. Your Mercury is in Libra. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. What to, what's that temperature state then? You're usually quite diplomatic and tactful. Evaluates and weighs things up endlessly. There you go. Often to the point of indecisiveness. <laughs> of good judgment, he expresses himself clearly. Before coming to an opinion on a subject, he listens to the opinions offered by various people and can compare them before making up his own mind. All right. You have a six trine between Uranus and Lilith. What? Lilith? Yes, this one has a Lilith as a planet. I went through everything on their website. I could not find what the F that means. Okay. So maybe if you read your entire 25-page report, you'd know. Absolutely not. (laughs) Jem lives through marvelous adventures. Without much follow-up, it is true, but these leave happy memories. He can have many successful adventures and fantastic love at first sight encounters. I'm sorry, Laura. He's got girls all over the world, apparently. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh, but also cancer on house seven. This can point to a rather strong marriage or partnership. A partner may not always be easy to live with due to moodiness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Called out for no reason. Hard to of here. Who do you think causes that moodiness? <laughs> like... oh, amazing. <laughs> You're Leo on house eight. You have to watch for a tendency to want to, want to control joint resources, but you can be generous and proud. All right, it's 10 o'clock. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry. I could do oh. this all night. I looked up a Lilith. It is a dark moon or the unseen planet. It's planet X. I was wondering if it was planet X. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> planet X. All right. So wait, so how do they know where it is then? It's just a shadow <laughs> on your sign. They sense the dark energy gem. Okay. That's how they know. Again, listeners, horoscopes are bunk. We're having a great amount of fun with it. You can also have a great amount of fun with it. Just don't base your life on it, I guess. You didn't do one for yourself, why? Oh, I did, but we're already at 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we haven't gotten to your segment yet. Did anyone, has anyone heard like some of the proposed explanations for how horoscopes might work? I read a lot of them today. And <laughs> like, is it just the fact that you get, we get fed it so early that we start to 
What's the word I'm looking for? Like when your name is something, so you become that job. Nominal determinism. Yeah, yeah. Like, like that. But becomes for, a butler. Yeah, yeah but for Cooper becomes astrology. a Cooper. Hunter becomes a hunter. I, I have always been told that cancers are sensitive, so I'm so super sensitive. Like stuff like that. Gems names as job roles are stuck in the 13th century. Yeah. Well, but backwards. Like that's not how that worked. <laughs> Like, I, I remember somebody was trying to argue that it has to do with gravitational forces of the various planets, and that might mm. play play an effect. But the idea that it would matter, that the star signs at the point of your birth would matter, as though your birth is like that specific interaction yeah. point seems strange yeah. to me. And also, the the person delivering you has a much stronger gravitational effect on you than... <laughs> Well, also, why do they why do they start at the moment of birth? Like, yeah. why doesn't it start at the moment of conception? Can we your make the birthday? Yeah, can we make the abortion debate starting point for for your astrological sign? What about you? Didn't talk about the the snake zodiac thing that usually goes with when people talk about how it's shifted. They talk about yeah, the the thirteenth one. It starts yeah. with an O. Yeah. Didn't care. <laughs> I, I am enough. not familiar with this one that you're talking yeah, about. I, I yeah, it was the big thing. That it started with an O and it was around like 2014. Yeah, 2016 with the whole Tumblr yeah. thing. And it's the only snake thing I can think of with an O is Ouroboros and... Ophiuchus. Yeah. Bless yeah. you. <laughs> no, honestly, I just wanted to make fun of it. Fair so, enough. Yeah. Yeah, there's no plausible way that that could affect a person. Roar. <laughs> all right, I'm done. Fun. Thanks, Lauren, for doing that. <laughs> Thanks, Lauren. I could talk all night, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> the stars predict tomorrow you'll wake up to a bunch of stuff and then go back to sleep. That's your horoscope Okay, well, let's move slightly closer to home and check in on the moon. Ashlyn? I'm going to say the moon is way closer than stars. Not even not even a little bit closer, but like way closer. I was going to ask if we had to have an astronomical talk with you if you think the stars are much closer. <laughs> <laughs> it is extremely common to hear people claim that emergency rooms and jails and other things are both busier during the full moon. As far back as 400 BC, physicians and philosophers blamed behavior and mental health on the tides and the moon. If the moon pulls on the water, and we are mostly water, obviously the moon has an effect on us. So what effect might that be? Lycanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> One study found that 81% of modern mental health professionals believe the full moon can make people ill. What? 81? 81%. Kate, when was that done, and who does this group include? Did not put that in my notes. Okay. <laughs> However, those people are all very wrong. <laughs> and they believe things because of decades of confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. As the late astronomer George Abel of the University of California noted, a mosquito sitting on our arm exerts a more powerful gravitational pull on us than the moon does. So never mind the person delivering your baby, as we were talking about with astrology. Yeah. A mosquito! Yeah. More gravitational pull than the moon, which is way closer than the stars and the planets. It's also worth noting that the gravitational pull of the moon is not affected by the phase of the moon. <laughs> yes, yes, like... that's, that's in here. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. The following is a non-comprehensive list of things that aren't affected by the moon, as far as we can tell. <laughs> and a couple of things that maybe are. Fertility in the menstrual cycle. 
not affected by the moon. The menstrual cycle just happens to last 28 days. As far as on we can tell. Average, on average. With a very wide yes. range. <laughs> Studies following for many cycles detected no correlation with phase of the moon or day of the cycle, anything like that. Like, millions of periods, nothing. Like, that would be so easy to figure out. Like, if it really was affected by it, then, like, everyone would start on the same day and end on the same day. Well, and it would just be, if, like, But it's, it's not so even normal. people start on the same day of the cycle themselves. Like, yeah. not even individually does it is it affected. Like, you don't have right. your specific yeah. moon day. Births. Possibly the most common myth is that the delivery room is full on the full moon. Thankfully, it is also seems to be the most studied of these phenomena. So here is a non-exhaustive list, again, of results of these studies into births, thanks to Wikipedia. <laughs> the distribution of 167,956 spontaneous vaginal deliveries, 37 to 40 weeks gestation in Phoenix, Arizona, between 1995 and 2000, showed no relationship with lunar phase. None. But it's Arizona. Analysis of 564,000 births from 1994 to 2001 in North Carolina showed no predictable influence of the lunar cycle on deliveries or complications. Analysis of almost 7,000 deliveries in Hanover revealed no significant correlation of birth rate to lunar phases. A 2001 analysis of 70 million birth records oh from the Jesus. National Center for Health Statistics revealed no correlation between birth rate and lunar phase. But there's been several more than 70,000 people born. So 70 million. So there's been several. There's been many more than 70 <laughs> yes, million correct. people born. An extensive review of 21 <laughs> studies from seven different countries showed that the majority of studies reported no relationship to lunar phase and that the positive studies are inconsistent with each other. <laughs> Always good. It is wild that this phenomenon is so well studied, but right? actual health conditions are like, oh, we can't study that. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, one more. In 2021, an analysis of 38.7 million births in France over 50 years with a detailed correction for birth variations linked to holidays and a robust statistical methods to avoid false detections linked to multiple tests found a very small, plus 0.4%, but statistically significant surplus of births on the full moon, and to a lesser extent the following day. The probability of this excess being due to chance is very low. The order is one chance in 100,000. The value is 1.5 times 10 to the minus 5. The belief that there is a large surplus of births on full moon days is still incorrect, and it is completely impossible for an observer to detect the small increase of 0.4% in a maternity hospital, even on a long time scale. <laughs> 0.4% is the best we can give you. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I'm going to come back to something like that during my segment, too. It's so well studied. I just, I, yeah, I liked that that was millions and millions of births have been studied. Okay. Sleep disturbances. Maybe. Maybe the moon disturbs our sleep. I mean, like, that seems like one of the more plausible ones because it's, like, brighter. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in 2016, research examined the sleep cycles of children in 12 countries. They did find that the children slept 1% less during the full moon phase. Likely due to the sky being brighter. Like, how much is that in minutes? Not much. That's how, they also <laughs> determined that there was no association between this change in sleep and a significant difference in behavior. So, of course, the thing is, like, teachers will say, oh, it's the full moon, they're nuts or whatever. There's no correlation. No. Assuming, no. assuming that kids sleep 10 hours, it's six minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's, that minutes. could be any, any day. Yeah. 
No one is overtired by six minutes. <laughs> Children don't sleep. A meta-analysis of 37 studies that examined relationships between the moon's four phases and different human behaviors revealed no significant correlation on any of them. The authors found that of 23 studies that had claimed to show correlation, nearly half contained at least one major statistical error. Similarly, in a review of 20 studies examining correlations between moon phase and suicides, most of the 20 studies found no correlation, and the ones that did report positive results were inconsistent with each other. So this is over and over again. There were some articles... So when you actually Google, does the moon have an effect on humans? Wow, those results are misleading. Yeah. There is so much stuff out there that is like, we studied four people and determined that bipolar disorder is definitely like definitely affected by the moon. What? Like, look at the rest of these studies. Yeah, so much yeah. garbage out there. There will be a single new study published that is contradicted <laughs> by the entire body of medical research. The study yeah. isn't great, but the pre the university will put out a press release and that study will get picked up. The reporters well, will not check the existing mm -hmm. data. Everybody loves a maverick. Andrew Wakefield is human garbage. <laughs> mm. So yeah, on the subject of mood and mental health, the one that came up a lot was this study for bipolar, where it's like one case study of one person is what a lot of them are going off of. Oh, and really? the other the other major study, I think, had 14 or 17 participants. Like, it's such garbage. And they're just like, oh, yeah, we definitely notice a difference. And this was reported, I think, in four different articles. That yeah, I read. So was, who publishes these studies? Yeah, it was terrible. So actual data on mood and mental health. The prevailing scientific evidence says no effect. 2017 study analyzed emergency room records at a 140-bed hospital found that people visited the ER because of a psychiatric condition in roughly equal numbers during all four phases of the moon. A 2006 review of 10,000 medical records from different facilities found the same thing. No relationship between the full moon and the number of psychiatric or mood disorder hospital visits. I feel like crap 365 or 366 days a year. No moon involved. <laughs> For decades, possibly even centuries, people have also persisted in believing that there are more assaults, traumas, and suicides during full moon periods. Numerous researchers have tackled those questions, and they've reviewed records, conducted their own studies, and came to this conclusion. A full moon doesn't cause an increase in those human behaviors. <laughs> <laughs> Hear that, budding serial killers? You got your hook. <laughs> Don't. Even all the way back in 1978, a review of the literature at that time found that lunar phases and human behavior were not related. We have known that this is not true for so long, and 81% of mental health professionals apparently still believe it has some effect. <laughs> but they see it, Ashlyn. They rely on their clinical experience, which is one of the reasons that, like, is just an example of how clinical experience is extremely unreliable. <laughs> right. So because the moon cycles are known to influence natural phenomena like the tides, there are a lot of theories that people believe that this would work. Like there are many mechanisms that have been proposed. But the effect of the moon's gravitational pull only works on open bodies of water, not on our brains or our hearts or anything else going on. <laughs> the influence of the, uh, like, the amount of actual pull on us is smaller than a mosquito. And, as Jem mentioned earlier, the gravitational pull on the Earth is exactly the same, whether the moon is full or not. The gravity thing has no, it holds no water. Haha, -ha, I made a pun. <laughs> okay, here's a couple other things. 
A study into epilepsy found a significant negative correlation between the mean number of epileptic seizures per day and the fraction of the moon that is illuminated. So there is actually an effect with the full moon. However, the effect resulted from the overall brightness of the night rather than from the moon phase per se. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So epilepsy, kind of affected by the moon. Yeah, and not in all cases, but photosensitive epilepsy is a thing. Like, we know it's affected Mm -hmm. by light perception. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Motorcycle fatalities. A study of 13,000 motorcyclists killed in nighttime crashes found that there were 5.3% more fatalities on nights with a full moon compared to other nights. The authors speculate that the increase might be due to visual distractions created by the moon, especially when it is near the horizon horizon. and appears abruptly between trees and around turns. Mm -hmm. Also, you're more likely to go for a ride on a nice bright night. Right. Sorry, if that yeah. was stepped yeah. on part of your study there. Yeah, if you are if you're going out, probably gonna pick a nice night. Yeah. Oh, the moon looks so pretty. Let's go for a ride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not too dark out. Hard to get into a motorcycle crash when you're not on the motorcycle. Yeah. So not impossible, but hard. <laughs> yeah. All of the things that I found evidence for were like that, where it was basically it's a little bit brighter, or the moon's planetness isn't the problem. The moon's being a light in the sky is yeah. the problem. The moon's Much attractiveness. Like yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, is it? I guess the rationale is something about the moon's light. The rationale for what? Like how the full moon would affect behavior. Oh, most people just think it's the gravity thing. It's just but garbage. but that like like or, or Jem just said, magic. it doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, or so, just magic. So I'm trying to distill it down. Like, what about the moon? Is it the fact that it's bright? Is it the moon's light? It's pretty. Is it like it's pretty, Laura? We've been looking at it for millions of years. That's all it takes. It's We're mysterious. Just... The moon. It doesn't affect stuff except sometimes it's a pretty light. Yay! And pretty bodies of water. <laughs> Actually, something I did want to mention is the something that I mentioned in our Discord. The fact that. The Wikipedia page can confidently say something like the moon has no effect on human biology or behavior. Like that is a huge statement yeah. <laughs> that seems to be true. Like I can, it's actually kind of unbelievable that it seems to have almost zero effect on us. It is surprisingly low in its yeah, effect. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was kind of, I thought that was mm-hmm. cool. Very well studied. Okay, so we're going to move from the moon to the Earth. And I'm going to talk about the theory. It usually goes backwards. Yes. I'm going to talk about the idea that maybe the Earth is a little bit bigger today than it was yesterday. No, it's smaller. We walk walk on it. Tamps it down. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely the humans walking. That was a Charles Schultz joke. I'm sorry. Wow. Yeah. Since European cartographers first began mapping out the Americas in the 16th century, many became preoccupied by a single feature, resulting in, at turns, consternation and delight. Do you know what this feature was? The dragons that they drew in the water? The three-star restaurant on on the next street over? The fact that it really seemed like the Atlantic Ocean shouldn't be there. Oh. If you take a look at any modern globe and examine the continents on either side of the Atlantic, it becomes difficult to argue with. I think I first noticed this while playing Risk in high school. How snugly Africa and South America 
fit together. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here is the theory of continental drift, which was formalized by meteorologist Alfred Wegener in the second decade of the 20th century. In a letter he penned in 1911, Wegener wrote, Doesn't the east coast of South America fit precisely into the west coast of Africa, so as if they had been connected in the past? This seems even more true when one looks at a bathographical map of the Atlantic Ocean and compares not the rims of continental dry lands, but the edges of the continental shelves to the deep sea. I have to follow up on this thought. Shortly after writing this, Wegener read of paleontological discoveries in both Brazil and Africa that strongly suggested close kinship between the flora and fauna of the regions, supporting his hypothesis that the continents had once been connected. Here he, he wasn't working alone, he was building on the work of Franklin Coxworthy, Roberto Mantovani, William Henry Pickering, and Frank Bursley Taylor. Wegener formalized the concept of continental drift in his 1912 paper, The Formation of the Continents. It has been clear to Earth scientists for centuries that the continents are on the move in some form or other, but it was clear neither how they were moving nor why. For about two centuries, the dominant explanation for what we now call continental drift was that the Earth was slowly expanding, resulting in the gradual movement of the continents farther away from each other. While many held that this expansion was more or less constant, the expansion hypothesis was sometimes coupled with or contrasted against the geophysical cooling hypothesis, <laughs> which held that as the Earth cooled, it gradually shrunk. Irish physicists John Jolie, best known for the development of radiotherapy and the treatment of cancer, proposed a theory of thermal cycles to explain the formation of the continents with alternating periods of expansion and contraction. Among those who favor an expansionist view, several different models for this expansion have been proposed. There are four main ones, volumetric expansion, mass expansion, decompression expansion, and modifications to general relativity. So I'll, I'll, go, I'll go through those briefly. Let's start out with volumetric expansion. In this model, the Earth expands, but the mass of the Earth mm -hmm. doesn't change. So, I don't know, I, I, kinda, I, I think this is the balloon theory, right. and maybe this will touch on Laura's segment a little bit later. But basically, like, the volume of the Earth is increasing, but there's no more mass. The second model is mass expansion. So this is expansion of volume with increasing mass. And it's probably the most popular model. There's, there have been several historical proponents of this model, including Ivan Isipovic-Yarkovsky, who is a 19th century Polish engineer. He proposed that the Earth and other celestial bodies were constantly absorbing the ether that, <laughs> that lay between the stars, thereby synthesizing new chemical compounds and expanding as a result. Probably the most credible scientific defender of the mass expansion model was Australian geologist Samuel Warren Carey, who spent much of his later career attempting to poke holes in the nascent model of plate tectonics. But the basic question at the heart of mass expansion is, where does the extra mass come from? In my reading, I was unable to come up with a, a satisfactory answer that was consistent with a modern understanding of physics. But two of the more popular explanations appear to be matter-antimatter pair production. <laughs> That's one of the more plausible <laughs> suggestions. Oh, <God>. Shit. <laughs> and probably 
like the, the most straightforward theory is like accretion, like sim- like simple yeah, accretion yeah, of matter. Yeah. So according to NASA, about 100 tons, that's to say 90,000 kilograms of meteoroids enter the Earth's atmosphere every single day. So surely, surely that amounts to something. I'll come back to that, Ashlyn. Is it like the really extended atmosphere? They just go right through it? I'll, 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 no, I'll I want to know now. But first, I need to talk about my favorite expanding Earth model. This is the third model, decompression expansion. This was proposed by James Marvin Herndon, a so-called interdisciplinary scientist. No. I mean, so am I. <laughs> Speaking as a dedicated generalist, never trust a generalist to have a deep understanding of complex scientific material. Yeah. We're just dilettantes. <laughs> Presumably everyone is familiar with the phrase, jack of all trades, master of jack shit. <laughs> anyway, in 2005, J. Marvin Herndon proposed that the Earth is actually the remnant of a Jovian planet. A gas giant no. that had been stripped of its outer gaseous shell by solar eruptions. We're just the gooey center? <laughs> yeah. So this catastrophic loss of its heavy atmosphere triggered a massive decompression event that mm. is still ongoing, with the Earth's crust cracking as the inner mass of the planet, no longer kept at bay by a heavy Jovian atmosphere, expands under the reduced outer pressure. So basically the Earth has a bad case of the bends. <laughs> Oh, God. BB, this explains some things. (laughs) (laughs) And the fourth model is modifications to the theory of general relativity. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely plausible. Uh, so, So basically, the way this works is it's based on the work of Paul Dirac, who's an English physicist in, or was an English physicist. And in 1938, he suggested that the universal gravitational constant had actually been steadily declining since the formation of the universe. And building on Dirac's theories, in 1964, German physicist Pascal Jordan proposed a modification to Einstein's theory of general relativity that allowed for the gradual expansion of planetary bodies, including the Earth. However, (laughs) it's a big however, modern Earth scientists overwhelmingly and resoundingly reject the expansion hypothesis because they're shills for big earth. I mean, small earth. (laughs) (laughs) The current model of continental drift is that of plate tectonics, which divides the earth's upper mantle and crust into seven or eight, depending on who you ask, major tectonic plates that are separated by faults. In addition to explaining continental drift, the movement of these plates also accounts for volcanic activity, mountain and oceanic trench formation, and earthquakes. Or, as I wrote in my notes, earquakes. Uh, (laughs) Those two. Plate tectonics was experimentally validated in the 1960s using measurements of seafloor spreading. I I actually hadn't realized until I did this research that it was so recently that uh, they experimentally validated it. But yeah. I had a science textbook that did not mention plate tectonics. Wow. <laughs> when I was in grade nine. So the approximate... Your school's really underfunded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So the continents are moving, and they appear to be moving by conveyor belt, as plate tectonics would suggest, with the approximate rate of continental drift appearing to be less than 10 centimeters, or less than about four inches per year. So in my view, the most convincing argument against the expanding Earth theory is simply the lack of evidence. The expansion of the Earth was initially proposed as an explanation for the shape and movement of the continents, but in plate tectonics we have a more robust model 
with more explanatory power that is better supported by empirical data. There's simply no reason to believe that the Earth is expanding. But arguments appealing to a lack of evidence tend to be unconvincing to those who subscribe to conspiracy theories. They tend to prefer woolly tangles of what-ifs and could-bes to the clean lines left by Occam's razor. So let's engage in some positivism, shall we? First, direct observation and measurement of continental motion supports the conveyor belt model of plate tectonics over an expansionist model. The most obvious example is probably the existence of subduction zones <laughs> in which the mantle <laughs> is consumed, Yeah, which is difficult to reconcile with a model that insists on an expanding globe. I suppose you could say, well, the subduction zones are insufficient to fully counteract the expansion zones, so blah, blah, blah. But there's more evidence. In 1978, McElhinney, Taylor, and Stevenson published a paper in Nature titled Limits to the Expansion of Earth, Moon, Mars, and Mercury, and to Changes in the Gravitational Constant. The authors used paleomagnetic data to determine that the Earth could not have expanded more than 0.8% over the last 400 million years. The authors also modeled changes to the gravitational constants over time and found it to be extremely stable, falsifying Pascal Jordan's model. McElhinney et al. conclude that their measurements are sufficient to exclude, quote, any current theory of Earth expansion. Hmm. As I said earlier, NASA estimates that about 100 tons, 90,000 kilograms, of matter enter the Earth's atmosphere every day, mostly in the form of dust and small gravel particles. But the vast majority of these never make it anywhere near the surface of mm -hmm. the Earth, instead burning up in the atmosphere. The tiny amount of mass that actually makes it to the surface is completely insufficient to account for the expansion required by the growing Earth hypothesis. But where does that dust go? Doesn't it just settle to the Earth? All we are is dust in the wind, dude. No, it burns up and becomes energy. I was making a joke, oh, but okay. yes. <laughs> in 2011, scientists at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory combined satellite laser ranging, very long baseline inferometry, and GPS with models of ocean bottom pressure and direct gravitational measurements to measure changes in the Earth's radius over time. They found that the average change in the Earth's radius was about 0.1 millimeter per year, or about the width of a human hair. <laughs> oh. According to Dr. Wu, the lead author, <laughs> quote, Our study provides an independent confirmation that the solid Earth is not getting larger at present, current, within current measurement uncertainties. While the plate tectonics model has been generally accepted by the scientific community as the explanation for continental movement for some 60 years, some non-scientists remain unconvinced. What, you say? <laughs> the most influential modern proponent of the expanding Earth theory, I think, was Neil Adams, who maintained until his death in April of this year that the Earth was indeed growing larger all the time. Neil Adams was not a scientist. He was a comic book artist. Hmm. But he had two major hobbies. Promoting comic creators' rights, which is good, and promoting eccentric scientific theories. <laughs> oh, more than one? Not In, just this one? Uh, once one you start down that whole... Yeah, path, like, <laughs> they're all connected. Once you start down that dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. <laughs> 
So one of the ones that I liked was he spent a long time arguing with Stephen Novella, actually, that it is electromagnetism, not gravity, that is responsible for planetary orbits. That's wrong. Yes. <laughs> In the case of the expanding Earth, Adams contended that the cause of this expansion was pair production, which I mentioned earlier, which involves the conversion of energy into mass, specifically paired matter-antimatter particles. While this energy-to-mass conversion would suggest an expansion with increasing mass model, the models I mentioned earlier, Adams actually seemed to support the idea that the Earth was expanding more like a balloon, with a hollow space growing in the center. These ideas found their way into his work in comics, culminating in Adams' truly incomprehensible magnum opus called Batman Odyssey, which ran from 2010 to 2012. In it, the Caped Crusader descends to the center of the hollow Earth to find it populated by a Neanderthal civilization, complete with a Neanderthal Batman. Yeah, that sounds about right. So this naturally raises the question. Laura, is the Earth hollow? And if so, is it populated by Neanderthal billionaires who like to dress up in bat costumes and punch poor people? Hollow. Side note. You stepped on what I wrote more than you, I expected you to. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <Did> That's <ask>? fine. <laughs> That's okay. Well, Jim, to get to your question of, is the Earth hollow? I just want to make a pretty clear statement. I think we can all agree that the Earth is not flat. We know that, right? It's definitely round. because the, parts the, of it are flat. Well, but like the idea of it being like a <laughs> pancake kind of deal with the dome over it, like you see on those documentaries, that's just preposterous, right? So we know that the Earth is a sphere, but like Gemma's saying, starting in the 1700s or the late 1600s, the question of how solid this sphere was started to emerge. So variations of this hollow Earth theory have existed for a long, long time. But the idea of a hollow earth really gained popularity and in greater social circles in the 18th and 19th centuries. So I'm, I'm mostly going to talk about the one guy who spent his whole life doing this. But let's let's talk about a little bit more history. So Edmund Haley of the <laughs> comet fame <laughs> yep. is someone who first posited, or not first, but someone who posited this theory in what was then mainstream scientific circles in the late 17th century. So he thought the interior of the Earth consisted of several nested hollow spheres, a nice Matryoshka doll kind of Earth nice. here. And each of them rotated around their own axis and had their own magnetic fields. I call it like the gobstopper model. Yeah. But they were free floating. That's the mm. thing. They, because the Earth we have is the gobstopper model. Yeah, so if you were to sh if you were to shake the Earth, would it make like a sound? I do not know about that. Uh -oh. But no, probably not because the magnetic fields hold them in place. Oh, but I wanted to go chuk chuk chuk. Well, it's not doll shaped. <laughs> okay. I guess they could conceive. You wouldn't even need a magnetic field, right? If they if they had the right, they could be orbiting each other. Haley already thought about shell. this. Let's. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but well, yeah, like they're they were nested inside of one another. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like one shell with a bunch of little ones going around. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still have, yeah. Yeah. So. While this idea sounds funny now, at the time it was not an unreasonable theory because Edmund, being a real scientist, was learning about the magnetic fields of the Earth and was thinking about how these things worked. And 
he didn't get it right, but he was on to something. Edmund Haley. Yes. Edmund Haley and the Insane Clown Posse. Magnets. How do they work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Magnets stick to metal. The refrigerator's made of metal. That's why your puppy dog sticks to the refrigerator. Great question. And there's been mythological ideas of, of hollow earth in different cultures, especially cultures that lived in areas where there were very deep caves, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. or crevices, things like that. Because you, if you don't know where this thing ends, how do you know it doesn't go all the way through, right? Yeah. Like, I was thinking about people who would live here and you know how would you even develop that theory like you can dig as far as you want to go and nothing ever changes just right. clay yeah, or you yeah. hit granite yeah 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 exactly exactly but yeah it it seems to be places where there are caves or or those types of sinkholes or things like that mm-hmm. where especially where they're very deep and very dark that is a cave boy a cave of wonders moving on into the 18th and 19th centuries, this theory of the hollow earth was really pushed forward by a gentleman named John Cleve Sims Jr. in the early 1800s. So he was of English descent, but born in New Jersey in 1780. He had a wealthy European upbringing with education and so much. So he was relatively well educated for the time and and so on and so forth. He wasn't an unintelligent person and he had schooling and he had some knowledge of things, but he wasn't a scholar. He wasn't an academic. He wasn't a scientist. So he spent his early adult years in the military. And once he retired from that, but not before he would get into a pistol duel with a man who would later become his biggest supporter, he moved to St. Louis <laughs> to be a traitor. Not traitor, but traitor. Okay. Very important. Yeah. yeah. Did they also no, fall in love? No, no. He, he married a woman. He married a widow who had six children and they had five more. I feel sorry. No, that poor woman. Yeah. I mean, Bach had 20 kids, so I mean. Wow. Anyway. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. John Cleve Sims was very bad at being a traitor. He was not good at business. <laughs> but... During this time where he was failing at business, he was able to devise his version of the hollow earth theory. So he was very intrigued by this, and he knew about magnetic fields as well. Now, he would deny his entire life that his theory had anything to do with Edmund Haley's, but it sure shared a lot of similarities to it. Hmm. He didn't have a comment. So his theory is is common among other contemporaries of his time in that the theory holds that the earth is hollow and that it has something inside of it. Now, what's inside of it will change depending on whose theory it is and so on and so forth. For some people, they used these theories of the hollow earth as a way to explain where ancient civilizations came from, for example, or where very secretive civilizations like the Atlanteans went when their city disappeared. So stayed in the dome underwater, of course. Right. Well, obviously that's what we know now, but we didn't know that back then. Oh! (laughs) Dante's Inferno. Yes. Nine, like, spheres of hell. Yes. I mean, circle that makes sense. Spheres. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all around the right. You can have a cool like we can we have we've got some cool world building here. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's got a frozen Satan as a ring pop in the center. <laughs> Sims theory in particular held that the Earth 
was hollow and it did have more hollow spheres inside of it. So again, very Edmund Haley. Edmund Haley's, what John Cleve Sims added was that he believed that there were holes at either of the poles yes. of the earth that allowed one to access these different spheres. I know who was a follower of him. Oh? Hitler? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. So I don't read science fiction. I don't do this kind of stuff. But apparently there's a thing called Sims holes in a lot of this type of science fiction named after this guy. I go down a Sims hole about once every six months and I just sit there and play with my little digital dollhouse and build houses for them and everything. But that's a different type of Sims hole. That is a different okay. type of Sims hole. Okay. Yes. Yes. So if anybody out there is familiar with the, the trope of Sims holes or the lore in science fiction, it comes from this fellow here. Now let's talk about these Sims holes a little bit. I'm, I'm spending most of my time talking about this guy, but just because his theory is great. Two openings, one at each pole. Of course, this is a guy who's never left New England. Well, okay, that's not true. He's never gone further than Kentucky in his life. He's not a scientist. I cannot say this enough. <laughs> to switch genres, he's the Sam Gamgee. <laughs> if I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. I mean, he's not a qualified scientist. He's he's attempting some science. But no, 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 he's not. He's coming, he's learning some things, finding them cool, and then deciding that he knows how it works <laughs> and making up theories, but not trying to do science. With all that said, and again, a lot of non-Indigenous peoples didn't know what was at least at the North Pole at that time and things like that. Sims decided that there were holes at the poles. and Because <laughs> it rhymed. <laughs> pole holes. They were different sizes. One was 6,500 kilometers wide, and the other one was 9,500 kilometers wide. So to put that into perspective here, the larger of the holes would have a diameter that was nearly twice the width of Canada, which is the second largest country by landmass in the world. Makes so, sense. So by our knowledge today, it would be absolutely impossible to not be aware of a massive hole in the planet, let alone two of them. It's so big. It's enormous. Like, the Earth wouldn't even be remotely spherical at that point. Oh my God, it's a Taurus. <laughs> Everything comes back to Tauruses. Oh God. The residents. So yes. So speaking of Taurus... Apparently, with these holes, the slope was gradual enough that one could walk over the edge to then enter the interior. Oh, it's of the it's planet. okay. So he yeah. does have like a, the Dyson sphere model. <laughs> so how does how does gravity work in his world? It doesn't. Yidavarg. This he's not a scientist. That's all <laughs> you need to know. Oh, okay. So Can we call this episode. He's not a scientist. <laughs> He does not. He doesn't even try to be a scientist. Like he, he does not. He does try to mount a mission to go up to the North Pole to find this hole. He's not able to get the money for it. He spends the last 10 years of his life going around his part of the U.S. trying to raise money, like touting his theory and all of that by some reports, leaving his enormous family in destitution while he goes to do this. But he does not ever get the North Pole expedition. His supporter is then somehow connected to a South Pole expedition that's sponsored by the U.S. government, but guess there's no hole. <laughs> 
All they found was the mountains of madness. And his theory also held that inside these spheres, there was probably like lush flora and fauna and it could support life and things like that. It's the Genesis Project? Kind of like that. Yeah. So he died in 1829 and his family built a monument to him and his theory, including a model of, of his Matryoshka doll Earth, which is still standing today. Laura, they put him into a hole in the earth. <laughs> did he pop out the other side? Maybe. <laughs> wait, wait, which hollow earth did he go into? Oh, okay. That is a really well-known one. And I want to say, even at the time, actual scientists said, this isn't science. This is not a thing. <laughs> Don't believe him, which is part of the reason that really? he couldn't get the money to go on this massive expedition. Yeah. So they were sabotaging him. They were <laughs> jealous. They were standing in the way of real progress. But his is one of the most famous and one of the most well-known ones because he yeah. spent so much of his time promoting it. And now it lives on in, yeah. in lore. There's still Simsy and believers out there. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you can find it today. This isn't the only hollow earth. A really interesting one that I found, though, is... The idea of the concave Earth, if you're familiar with that one. No. So we think we live on the outside of the planet. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but what if, what if we live on the inside? Must be a pretty freaking massive planet, Laura. Yeah. yeah. And the sky <laughs> we look at well. is the universe is on the interior yeah. of the planet. The universe here. is inside out. Yeah. yeah messed up this is i mean interesting but no again not a thing this one was popularized by several people but most notably someone named cyrus teed who was a doctor from new york state and he started a cult around this idea the koreshians if you want to look that up this one just does my head in i can't i can't turn it inside out like this Yes, and neither can the Earth. So. <laughs> but Lewis Carroll. <laughs> oh, but that's so fun. Yeah. It's fun. In any case. So that is another hollow Earth theory that's out there. Again, none of these people are scientists. Well, I mean, doctor, but it was like late 19th yeah. century. He did like... Okay, he might, he probably knew body stuff, but he, he did was he not though? an astronomer. He was not a geologist. He, he was knew not most of the major organs. <laughs> so in young white men, they had like cocaine and stuff back then. <laughs> I'm really curious for this Koreshian cosmology. <laughs> I'm really curious, like when you dig, like is it just dirt forever? Well, that's the thing. Like they or like like what's outside. I didn't look that far into it because <laughs> I, it. at least now I don't get the sense that this anybody is really into this one. It was a very time limited thing and his cult fell apart after he died. And that's apparently the cult headquarters or whatever is a historic site in Florida. Of course, it's Florida. Florida <laughs> man. Florida man. I'm but, more caught up in the fact that it's Koreshian. Yeah. He renamed himself Koresh. So, yeah. but we're not talking David Koresh. No, 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 but rabbit holes, Sims yeah. holes. <laughs> yeah, holes. It's all connected. It's all the Taurus. Oh my it's god! All connected. Oh god! Oh, what is that? Okay, we we have to put that movie in the show notes. I think because yeah. whoever hasn't watched it will be like, why do they keep talking about this? In any case, 
So the, the Taurus was Thrive, right? The Magic Taurus? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I all I remember is donuts. Yeah. Just donuts. I think it was like the... episode 26 or something. That was a messy one. That was, I think, the first one we ever recorded online. Oh, a long time okay, ago. Okay, anyway. That's the Hollow Earth theory. Kind of cool in some ways. Not at all plausible. Nobody who knows anything about how any of these celestial bodies works has ever believed such a thing. You know nothing, Jon Snow. For those who enjoy factory fantasy fiction, Wees and Hickman's Death Gate cycle had one of the worlds that was a hollow earth, like a hollow world, which was very cool. And it still made my head hurt. Mm-hmm. But yeah, cool. I love the hollow earth theories. They're so fun. It like It is kind of fun, especially that whole like, oh, there could be different life in there. And that was... So for Jules Verne, Jules the Eloy the and the, yep. the Earth, like he was influenced by some of these ideas, and yep. and then that helped lend credence to the guys who were popularizing it, right? Because now it's in, in popular fic- like popular culture as well, and and people were thinking, well, maybe it could be, and it wasn't the Eloy. The Eloy lived on the surface. What was what was the race that was underneath the ground? Doesn't matter. So that is the Hollow Earth theory. Cool. That was great. Thanks, Lauren. The concave earth thing. Morlocks. Morlocks, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, concave earth is just wacky. Before we dive into something nice, I've got an update on a story we talked about a few episodes ago. When I discussed face mites in my segment on episode 179. Definitely not something nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there was actually a recent study on Demodex that was published just this June. So a team of invertebrate biologists actually sequenced the genome of Demodex folliculorum, which is one of the two species that live on your face. And they found that the mites appear to have lost many of the genes that would be required for them to function independently from humans and other host animals. Oh, neat. Meaning that they are now on the cusp of moving from a facultative parasite, which is how they've been classified, to an obligate symbiont. (gasps) Oh! This is something that some news articles have chosen to characterize as the mites merging with humans, which I think is overselling it a little bit. But it is interesting. Perhaps more interestingly, it was discovered that they do, in fact, poop. (laughs) I will quote from an interview... Terrible information. (laughs) ...with one of the investigators, Alejandra Perotti, that was published in June. Quote, It was previously thought that the mites lack an anus leaving some to predict that they must excrete waste by another unidentified method. However, (laughs) the more popular theory goes that the mites hold in all their feces across their lifetime, leaving behind an explosion of excrement upon death. This is totally wrong, says Perotti. In fact, the anus of the mites was described through electron microscopy in the 60s, she adds. In the new study, the team showed the development of the digestive system and highlighted the hindgut opening, setting the record straight. Face mites do have an anus. Apparently, it's just very hard to find. (laughs) And I looked at some of the electron microscope images, and it is like just the tiniest little shadow in one area. So I'm like, okay, I'll take your word for it. Microscopic buttholes. I mean, really. Yes. (laughs) So they aren't little poop bombs. We're science. 
We're all about coulda, not shoulda. No, it's just more gradual. Yeah. Well, now I'm wondering if this is how we get the trill and the symbiotes. No. <laughs> oh. And and then I was Two thinking. Years. Then I was thinking, how do the symbiotes poop? <laughs> it's probably like lymphatic related. Yeah. Yeah. It all gets absorbed into the juice system. <laughs> the juice system. Ew. Are you an apple or an orange? <laughs> I had like a tall, a tall glass of lymph in the morning. Oh no! <laughs> it tastes like death. <laughs> Yucky. Okay, I regret my words. Let's continue. I'm gonna be thinking about how the symbiotes poop now. <laughs> Sorry. On that note, let's move on to something nice. <laughs> Ashlyn. Okay, I made my partners do math earlier because we recently finished our bathroom renovation that we did all on our own, and it, it looks like it, but it was done. <laughs> we did have a professional plumber come and install the fancy toilet because yes. I don't trust myself with that. We got a very fancy toilet with all the money we saved not renting a con- not hiring a contractor. That's what you use for people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And this contractor on long-term lease. It's <laughs> <laughs> indentured servitude. <laughs> retainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah retainer, okay, that's yeah. the word. That's a good word. Okay, so we hired a contractor to install our extremely fancy toilet. And I wondered out loud today, since Lauren has noticed that we have indeed used much less toilet paper since the advent of fancy new toilet with the fancy bidet and everything. So I wondered, how long will it take our toilet paper savings to pay for our extremely fancy toilet? So she did some gem math. Oh, yeah. She actually called it the gem math. So so I asked my partners, who wants to do some gem math? (laughs) (laughs) And we determined that we are saving roughly a case of toilet paper a month, which is $22.99 at Costco plus taxes. So I rounded up to $25. And I figured... Three or four years, and we'll have paid off the very expensive toilet. Wow! Yeah, which is really not that bad. It's definitely going to last three or four years. Like, oh, plus I mean, another twenty on top of that. We hope any <laughs> any toilet should last you at least that long. Right, right. So that's that's kind of nice thing that we learned today. Cool, nice. Yeah. Or as we learned from the astrology segment, August is my birth month. This is the August episode. I also in my segment. I quoted about Planet Cricket, which is from Life, the Universe, and Everything. This year, I am turning 42, which is the answer to Life, the Universe, and Everything. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the else is, (laughs) but I am the answer for three quarters of... No. (laughs) (laughs) What is the else? But that's what it is. I'm turning 42. And it all ties in very neatly in a Taurus. And here we are. (laughs) Well, happy birth month. Thank you. And same to Laura, my almost birthday twin. Almost birthday twin. Yep. Yep. My something nice is that I just got to have a nice evening yesterday with three of my best friends, one of them Yay. who lives out of town and was in for a night and we got to have time together and like that. It was just nice. That's the best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was nice. Saw that leftover bottle of sangria on your counter. Yeah, we all bought too many snacks and too many drinks, and we were all like, "Whoa, but I have to work tomorrow." <laughs> so I came home with all the snacks that I that I brought. My something nice is as of this recording, not last week, but the week before, 
I did some shadowing at our local trans health clinic. Yay! Uh, I shadowed under a nurse practitioner who was amazing, and it was just a really great, positive experience. And it really solidifies that, I, if possible, I would love to make that a core part of my practice. Once. The dream is alive! <laughs> we, and whether the dream is alive or not, that is a, a practice that we need sorely in Winnipeg. Yeah. yeah. It was just, like, subject matter aside, like, it was... It was a great shadowing experience in general. Mm -hmm. Like I got an opportunity to see a, a variety of patients for a variety of reasons. And I got to talk about uh, scope of practice and hormones and the fact that in Manitoba, maybe it's in Canada, Canada-wide, NPs can prescribe estrogen mm -hmm. and testosterone blockers like spironolactone, but they can't actually prescribe testosterone yep. because it's a controlled substance. Uh. Doping, etc. So the physicians can sign those prescriptions as necessary and, and like that. But but the the actual shadowing experience aside, like it was just a really positive environment, and the patient interactions were great. And it was just, I, I was nervous about it going in because I haven't done a lot of shadowing, but it was just a wonderful experience. Excellent! Awesome. I'm so glad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we told a lot of, when you, you sent us a message about that, and we told a lot of our friends in the, a lot of our friends are trans and queer, believe it or not, and they're like, yay, a doctor who understands. <laughs> so, you already have patients lined up, if you want to take that route. <laughs> no shortage. Oh. All right, what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? I want to do a topic that you're all going to hate, <laughs> but it's going to be so good. And I, I feel like we might have even done this before, probably also at my request, but I want all of us to put together a segment about something in the news or just generally in the world right now that is giving you hope for the future. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh. Well, I have enough on my plate, Ashlyn. <laughs> you expect you to listen to the news? as well? <laughs> Find us something good to talk about for the whole thing. You know how hard segment. it is. You to really find like that podcast, don't you? Nice. <laughs> oh, is that the Margaret Kiljoy podcast? Oh, that's nope. cool. People who did cool right. stuff. Okay. I like that podcast too. What is the okay. one that you're talking about? Oh, no, that's the, the Margaret. Yeah, yeah okay. I assumed that that was your inspiration. I keep oh, no, no. That I need to <laughs> no, that podcast that. is full of a lot of murders, but because mostly the cool people get dead while doing cool stuff. Yeah. So it's actually not a very uplifting podcast <laughs> in a lot of ways. But yeah, I was thinking like something along the lines of I might talk about the pan coronavirus vaccine, for example, like something mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. like out there that maybe we can think about is a good thing that might happen to us in our lives. That's what I want to talk about. Cool. Well, even just like a cool science thing that is upcoming and not presently here. Whatever. Something nice. Scientists recently found a butt on an electron microscope exactly. that they'd lost. A very know, tiny butt. 60 years ago. Yeah. Again, there's certain things that it's like, we can study this, <laughs> but we can't study other things that affect so many people all the time. 70 million births they studied to find out whether the moon affected them. <laughs> signing these grants and being like, yeah, this is totally worth the I'm money. I'm sure for that like, one it was just pulled out of a gigantic database. But yeah, whatever. yeah. It's very cheap. Yeah, I'm sure. I am looking forward to looking for something hopeful. So thank you for this. Thanks for joining me tonight, everyone. Thank this you. was fun. This was a fun one. Good night. Good night. night. Good night. Good night.
Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Huxley Newman. (laughs) Go to sleep. Go to sleep, you little bay. 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 Your mama's going away and your daddy's going to stay. Didn't leave nobody but the bay. Sugar don't stop, gonna bring a bottle to the bay.